0: Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak and I'm a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money better. We look at the stock market and the things that make it go up and down. We look at legislation that can impact your financial bottom line. In the Plan Your Prosperity segment, we take a deep dive into a financial planning topic to help you understand the details a little bit better. And then finally, in the Ask Peggy segment, that's your opportunity to ask me a question. So if you would like to submit a question to the show, go to askpeggy.com. That's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com. You'll find a place that you can um, write your question, give me your contact information. I will probably be in contact with you. Just to get a little bit more information to make sure we've got everything that I will need to craft an answer for our listeners that can be educational. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears Market and Economic Update. And what I want to talk about today is volatility. Now, volatility is actually kind of a high-end technical term that has a really important basic meaning in your stock and bond portfolio. So technically speaking, volatility is a statistical measure of how a stock or bond or fund provides returns related to something else. So literally, the the statistical term is dispersion. And what dispersion means is, how is it spread out? So if you looked at the returns and you looked at what you were comparing it to, are the returns really tightly bunched around that comparison? That would mean you had less volatility. If they're widely spread out and kind of all over the map, That means that you have more volatility. Now, that thing you're comparing it to can either be the average return. So you'd take your fund, you'd calculate the average, and you'd get a number, right? That would be your average return for however many samples you put in there. Then you'd look to see how widely it was spread out. That kind of measure is called standard deviation. Maybe instead of looking at it compared to its mean, you want to look at the returns of your fund to a benchmark like the S&P 500. How tightly bunched is it around the S&P 500 returns? Again, if it's close, that means it moves pretty much in lockstep with the S&P 500, or at least it did in the past. If it's all over the map, you know that the S&P 500 doesn't provide you with a very good gauge as to what's actually going on. So why am I talking about volatility today? Because with the coronavirus outbreak, with other geopolitical issues, it just feels like one day the market's 200 points up, the next day it's 200 points down. And sometimes when I'm looking at whether or not I think we're up or down for a week, even I get it wrong. And so surprisingly, The Dow Jones Industrial Average was actually up last week. Now, I am taping this show on February 17th, so that's for the week ending February 14th. But I'll be honest with you, it didn't feel like that when we were in the middle of last week, because it's up, it's down, it's sideways. Volatility is the cause of that. And it's why you want to be very careful that you actually look at data rather than just trusting your gut, because sometimes wide market swings can make you feel something is somewhere it really isn't. So there's one more piece to today that I want to talk about with you, and that is being absolutely sure you understand an investment before you make it. And I'm using as my example today the meltdown of the VIX, the Volatility Index, that happened in February of 2018. So the Volatility Index also has a high-end definition and a low-end definition. Technically, it is the volatility of an option contract against the S&P 500. We're not going to go into a conversation about options, but basically they're derivatives. So it's not just what the S&P 500 is doing. It's like a leveraged return within your S&P 500. So what's the volatility of that? In more common normal language and the way the VIX is used, it is the stock market fear and investor uncertainty measurement. How afraid are people of the stock market? So when the VIX is high, that means that people are very fearful. When the VIX is low, it means people feel pretty good about things. So it's possible, and it used to be more common than it is today after February of 2018, that people would actually literally invest in the VIX. They would invest in the fear index. And a lot of times, if the market is going well, people would invest in a way that they made money if the VIX stayed low. That's another investment conversation for another day. But you can short the VIX, and you actually make money as long as fear stays low. So this became about the hottest trade around in early 2018, and the markets were doing great. The VIX was low, volatility was low, consumers were really happy with how everything was going, investors were happy, seemed like a great time to bet that people weren't gonna get worried. So bunches of people did this, people who had no idea what they were really investing in. And guess what? The market had a hiccup. It wasn't a great huge market crash because you've never heard of the unsurvivable market crash of 2018. Instead, especially in February, um, instead, the market just made a normal correction. But because of the way people were invested when they didn't really know what they were doing, they just knew that it had made 600% in the last um, five years, and so they wanted in, they got hurt. And some people got badly hurt. I'm going to put a link up to the um, article that I got a lot of this basic information from. You can Google VIX crash February 2018 and read a million articles on it. But I'm gonna go ahead and put up the article that I use as a source. There's three things at the end of this article that I think are really important for you and it has nothing to do with investing in the VIX. It's just any time you're making an investment. And the first thing that I would say is You've got to understand it. You've got to know what you own. You've got to know how it makes money and you've got to know the risks. That's not on their list. But then the questions they ask is if something happened to my investment, it went down by 50%, possibly not to come back for a while. Again, my words. Would you be okay? So if you invested in something and it lost half its value, and it took it a while or maybe never to come back. What would happen to you? Then second is liquidity. Is what you're owning easy to sell? Generally, investments are liquid, or not all of them, but, but a lot of them are generally liquid. But you always want to make sure it's not something private, something that doesn't have a public market, and then be very careful what happens if everybody runs for the door at the same time. Can the liquidity withstand that? And then finally, you know, we make a return for taking risk. Are you getting a return that is equivalent to the risk that you're taking? Because by the time the last people got into the VIX in February of 18, there wasn't that much more money to make. The the bull run had already happened. The money had already been made. So be very, very careful when you're late into a rally and you're like, oh, I think I'll get in now, that you've actually got good data to back up why you think it will keep going up. Your gut saying it's going to go to 1,000 is not the kind of information I'm talking about. So do your research. Be very careful. Most importantly, use data and don't invest in something you don't understand. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. Today, we are looking at two additional applications and outcomes from Regulation Best Interest or Reg BI that is the new standard of care put forward by the SEC last year. Remember that Reg BI is implemented in June, so the SEC is offering clarifications and other groups are weighing in as to whether or not they want to follow these same standards. So the first article today is really very interesting because there has been forever a carve out of the kinds of disclosures and explanations that brokers and advisors needed to provide to sophisticated investors um, called wealthy individuals or sophisticated investors or qualified. But typically, these are people who have money and they have market experience. So if you're just getting started in the market or you've just had a 401k plan, you likely don't fall into this category. One interesting thing that we talked about a few episodes ago was how the SEC was changing the requirements to get into some of these riskier investments. And they were lowering the standards, letting more of the rank and file retail investor have access to products. You know, that was changing the sophisticated investor's um, definition by quite a bit. Well, what the SEC clarified in their frequently asked questions about Reg BI is that the best interest standard of care applies to these higher knowledge level clients as well as rank and file clients. A lot of times brokers and advisors got a little bit of a pass where there was the assumption that the investor was sophisticated and they knew that there was money going back and forth and they knew that, you know, the broker was getting a commission and they knew it was highly speculative. So the broker or the advisor didn't have to do as much disclosure. Well, now those sophisticated investors are covered by the umbrella of regulation best interest which, quite frankly, is much better than having them excluded. I still wish that regulation best interest used the fiduciary standard as its benchmark. It's not. It's that new standard of care that we've talked about a lot on the show, but I'm still very glad that the SEC is requiring that brokers and advisors use Um, a best interest or hold a best interest standard when they're dealing with these sophisticated investors. Because it can get pretty squirrely out there when you get into this world. And even someone who meets the definition by their net worth and the number of years they're in the market. There's always been a question, how sophisticated are these people really? Or do they just hear high return potentially, and they jump in because they want to make money? So this is saying, no, it's up to the advisor or broker to hold a best interest standard for these people, explain more, explain the fees, explain the limitations. Hopefully it will lead to better investing outcomes for them. Now, the second application of regulation best interest is through the insurance community. So the NAIC, which is the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, has voted to require a regulation best interest standard of care in the sale of annuity products. Now, when you own an annuity, if it's a variable annuity, you own something that looks a lot like a mutual fund. It's not technically, it's a sub-account, but it tracks the market. And in your variable annuity, it goes up, it goes down, depending on what the market is. But because it's inside the insurance wrapper of an annuity, it's been much harder for state and federal regulators to come in and say, you need to act this way. Because there's a bit of a bright line between the insurance world and the brokerage world. Well, the NAIC has gone in and said, we like regulation best interest. We think it's going to be the standard of care. And so we're going to require that our insurance agents who have the security license that allows them to sell these market-based annuities have to follow the same standard as if they were selling these investments outside of the annuity product. So to that end, it's actually a really a really good thing again for consumers. Now what makes me a little nervous is the NAIC was opposed to the original fiduciary rule put out by the SEC A Department of Labor, rather, several years ago, that fiduciary standard has since died. And the NAIC did not want their insurance agents held to a fiduciary standard level of care. They are, however, fine with the regulation best interest standard of care. Well, I think that keeping a client a little bit safe is better than not keeping them safe at all. I do wonder what's really going to happen since Reg BI is not a legal definition, it's simply a regulation where fiduciary actually has legal teeth behind it. But hopefully this will help the purchasers of variable annuities as with any investment like we talked about in the last section. Ask a lot of questions. Find out how much the person is earning in commission. Find out any surrender periods. Find out any fees. Find out any sub-account fees. Make sure the product helps you meet your planning goal. Because sometimes annuities do. They help provide that stream of income that people want. So do your due diligence, be very careful, but the NAIC has put the ball a little bit more back in the court so it will be easier for you to keep up with. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today I want to talk to you about planning your summer vacation. Now, it's still the middle of February, and it's cold, and it's gross, and it's windy, and sometimes we have freezing rain in Oklahoma. Rarely, although once in a while, we'll get a big fluffy snow. We had one just a few weeks ago, and everyone here was very excited. But generally, Oklahoma winters are just gross. And if you are in a gross climate... This is the perfect time to start thinking about your summer vacation and the warm weather and what you guys want to do and where you want to go. If you will start planning your summer vacation now, you can make a lot of better deals, save some money, and have fun doing it. So the biggest advantage to trying to plan your vacation now is Often, it is less expensive when you book something in advance than when you book it right before when you're trying to leave. Now, that's not always true, but typically in vacation planning, time is your friend. Additionally, there are venues that you know are going to be expensive. I read an article last week on what the price of Disney tickets have done. But there's also slightly more out-of-the-way places that could be just as much fun that could save you a lot of money. If you start working on planning your vacation now, you have time to do research and you have time to go find those slightly off-the-beaten-path places and save some money while you're doing it. I am a big fan of having a family meeting when you start planning your summer vacation. You can find out where people would like to go this summer. So it's you and your spouse or your partner and your kids. Anyone going on the vacation should be part of this meeting. It will also help get everybody enthusiastic about the trip this summer. So if you need to start saving money, It might get people more enthusiastic about saving a little bit of their allowance money back or their part-time job money back, and you'll get a better buy-in from people when they're enthusiastic about doing it. So you can start with asking them where they want to go. That always is a good place to begin because it'll give you some basic framework as to what kind of a vacation If you don't dare do that because you've got five kids, they're all going to say Disney. And I know this is not a democracy, but five kids versus two parents, and it can get a little bit annoying. So if that's not on the table, then give them a list of choices. This is why you start doing the research first. And let them have some say in where they're going it's okay to let them know what it costs, especially if taking the vacation means that some of your other things that you spend money on right now can't happen. Because if they know they're taking a trip in July, if there isn't money to go to the movies this weekend because you need to put that in the travel account, it will make it easier for them. But be really careful because it's hard for kids to understand what money means. Little kids might be able to understand some things in relationship with their allowance. So, how much does it cost to fill your vehicle? How many weeks of allowance money is that? Kids have very unrealistic expectations about cash. You can just share that, not make it a big deal. I mean, you would never say something like, oh, well, you know, I can't give you your allowance because I need to put gas in the car as a threat. Now, if you really do need to do that, of course you do that. But you don't want to threaten with money, but you do want to start them understanding how much things cost. As they get older and they're teenagers, you might relate the cost to a tank of gas or a cell phone bill. So if you're wanting to stay in a hotel, maybe each night in the hotel costs the equivalent of two tanks of gas or maybe each night in the hotel is the equivalent of of one month of cell phone bill. This is going to help kids contextualize it. And it's really easy for them not to do that. For that matter, it's really easy for adults not to do that. We talk about the money in the abstract, and then we really don't have any accountability. Once you know the location, then send everybody on some research excursions to find out what you can do while you're there and then let everybody get back together for another meeting to list the one thing they want to do while they're on the trip i think a lot of times parents really want their kids to have a good time and so they just book the thing full of activities and excursions and events because they want their kids to have fun what's Better, in my opinion, is that you ask your kids what they want to do, because you may find that what you thought they wanted and what they really want are very different, and it's incredibly possible that what they want to do costs less than what you were planning. So if you can work in everybody's top item, and then if there's any money left, you can fill in with other things that you think would be fun but you'll have a lot better buy-in again if they have some control over the activities. Now, you wanna create a savings plan. How much is all this going to cost? It's still February. Let's say you're making a trip in July. That's a number of months you can save. Start saving the money now for your trip so you're not hating the credit card bills in August. You'll be able to pay them off or pay cash for the trip in advance, or prepay things. It will make you so much happier after the vacation. Additionally, research shows that we get most of our joy, most of what we enjoy about a trip, happens before we actually go. It's the anticipation that we love. Once we're home from the trip, that satisfaction slides off pretty fast. So if you're going to pay a lot of money to go on a trip, get as much out of it as you can, have a long time to anticipate it, look forward to it, save your money for it, and you will have a better time this summer. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today's question comes from a listener who says, Peggy, Is it okay if I have all my money in a blended mutual fund? And without knowing your risk tolerance, I can't answer that specifically, but I can give you several things you need to think about. The first question is, do you understand what a blended mutual fund means? It means that in the composition of one fund, you own U.S. stocks, you own international stocks, and you own bonds. Now, some blended mutual funds hold the same break as long as you hold the fund. So maybe you've got 50% U.S. stocks and 50% bonds. So that's what the fund always looks like. But if you have a target date fund, that asset allocation changes over time and becomes more conservative the longer you own it. The idea being when you're in retirement, you should be taking less risk. You know, we talked about volatility in the first section, and bonds are typically not quite as volatile as stocks are. And so, the older you are, the more your blended target date fund is likely to own bonds to lower the volatility, to lower the risk as defined by standard deviation. So, you need to know that. If you don't want that fund to change, then you need to select another fund. So you need to make sure that whatever your asset allocation is, you know what it is, and you know how it changes. Additionally, it's important for you to know that different asset classes have different risk characteristics. So if your asset classes are domestic or U.S. stocks, international stocks, and U.S. bonds, those three kinds of investments are going to respond differently to different kinds of risks. Now, your international and U.S. stocks will probably act more similar. The bonds, on the other hand, might actually go up while the stocks are going down. So what I hate to hear is when a client comes in and says, well, I was afraid the market was going to go down, so I sold everything. It's like, everything? Yeah, I sold everything. When I look at the portfolio, they owned bonds. Now, I am not going to tell you whether you should own bonds or not on this show. I'm I'm never going to tell you that on this show. But I am going to tell you that how your stocks are reacting and how your bonds are reacting are not the same way. And if you were going to have a more actively managed strategy, it doesn't make a lot of sense by any textbook definition to sell a fund that sells both your stocks or your bonds. The only way around that is to break the portfolio into pieces. Because if you own a blended fund, your, your options are own it or don't. But if you own stock funds, international stock funds and bond funds, if you wanted to make an adjustment to your portfolio, you could. If you simply want to buy it, hold it, and forget it, then the blended fund doesn't have that risk to it, assuming you chose the right blend. Unfortunately, people will tend to get cold feet or they decide they want to get active with their money, and then suddenly they're making choices they don't know they're making because they don't know what they own. Well, that's it for this show. I can't believe how fast it's gone. Have a great week. Bye. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDowiak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.